Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Rollbar. Move fast and fix things like we do here at Changelog. Check them out at Rollbar.com slash Changelog. Resolve your errors and minutes into deployable confidence. Catch your errors in your software before your users do. And if you're not using Rollbar yet or you haven't tried it yet, they want to give you $100 to donate to open source via Open Collective. And all you got to do is go to Rollbar.com slash Changelog, sign up, integrate Rollbar into your app. And once you do that, they'll give you $100 to donate to open source. Once again, rollbar.com slash changelog. Welcome to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the show at changelaw.com slash community. Follow us on Twitter. We're at JS Party FM. And now on to the show. Hello, party people. Welcome to JS Party. I am K-Ball. I will be your MC this week where we are going to celebrate JavaScript and the web and talk about all sorts of fun things with projects big and small. I am joined by my man, Nick Nisi. Nick, how you doing? I'm doing good. And Christopher Hiller, aka Bone Skull. I just have to bring that in every time because I love that name. How you doing, Chris? Super. How are you? Life is great. I'm excited about this topic, actually, and I think you two are great to have on the show because you have such a range of experience in different types of projects. So we're going to be talking about you know, the ways that projects vary across size and age. This is a topic I've been thinking about a lot recently. Um, on a episode a couple weeks back, we talked about how code camps often have a problem because folks are learning with projects and the lifespan of the project is at most some number of weeks. And so there are just practices that don't make sense in that range. Um, so wanting to think through that a little bit more. Before we jump into that, though, I do want to do a little bit of a hint and a tease. We have an awesome giveaway that we're able to do uh, to JS Party listeners. We're going to hold a little raffle contest and we'll get details at the end of the show. So uh, I suppose if you want to, you could skip all the way to the end to hear it. But really, we want you to listen all the way through before you hear that. So um, that will come at the end. Uh, make sure you take the time to listen all the way through. But let's kick off by talking about some of the dimensions along which projects vary, because there's so many different ways that a project might be different in terms of things like age, pace of change, uh, mission criticality, all these other different things. Um, let me throw this out. Probably first, let's go to Chris, since you've got some pretty different stuff in the open source world versus your work. Like, What are some of the dimensions you've seen projects vary that have impacted the way that you approach them and the way that you do your code? Mm, yeah, that's kind of a, that's it's pretty wide open, isn't it? So dimensions along which projects vary. I, I think that uh, I do a lot of work on Mocha, right? And the focus with Mocha is to make sure it works and it you know remains stable. And that project is what, eight years old now, which I mean, that to me, that feels like, kind of a, an old project as, as things go nowadays. And so I think once you kind of 
reach this plateau of adoption, you need to kind of pull back the reins a bit. And, you know, instead of adding all these new features, maybe it's just focusing on bug fixes. It's not to say that the project is in maintenance mode because it's very much, you know, you think maintenance mode, you think, oh, that's, that's a project that's, you know, basically done and all they're doing is fixing a bug or two here. But it's uh, actually, there's been a lot of uh, activity on, on Mocha as of late. And so that's really great to see. But yeah, it, when pro- other projects that I've worked on for companies, definitely not that old. Part of the reason that I don't want to go off on a tangent, but you know, part of the reason I, I decided I didn't want to do "quote unquote" production software engineering anymore was because I was continually working on these projects, which were essentially on these dev teams, which are feature factories. And if you haven't heard of feature factory, it's uh, this kind of this terrible loop that a lot of software teams get into, where it's just all about shipping new features, and there's not a whole lot of design, there's not a whole lot of postmortems or really time to stop and think. It's just pile stuff on. We need to kind of match what our competitors are doing, this uh, sort of thing. And so I had never really gotten to this point with a software project in, in my professional career where I was mainly doing maintenance. And so it's new and something. it's definitely something I've had to learn as I work on Mocha because it didn't come naturally to me. I I started and I wanted to just like add more features to stuff because that's what you do, right? Little did I know that's not what you always do, but that was my experience. And so I started and I wanted to add all this stuff and I got frustrated when I couldn't, but finally came to terms with, you know, this project, we need to focus on on stability and reliability and, and make it robust. And it's not, it's more about quality of, of what we have than quantity of what we have. And so I really like working that way now, but I didn't really know it was a thing before I did. That's interesting. You kind of highlighted a couple different dimensions on that. One was sort of maturity, and the other is kind of this idea between a user-facing product where you know, potentially you know, features are something that, that are just going to get demanded for various sorts as compared to something that is essentially a, a utility, a developer-facing tool? Well, I mean, I think people may make a little more of that than they should. I mean, granted, yes, are the people that use Mocha are developers, and so there's a certain audience there. And with any product, of course, you know, you, you got to tailor it to what your users need. But they're still users, and you still need to... It's not work for a client. It's We're not selling it. And so we have the, I guess I can say, luxury of looking at the product or the project as a whole and prioritizing the health of that project over necessarily one or two users who may want some really bizarre feature. And so that, that's, that's kind of a, another neat idea because we have the ability to say no. Uh, when you're in that feature factory and, and you're cranking out widgets, you just do it. Yeah, and with that is also the luxury of not shipping anything until it's absolutely ready. So you're not... You're not you know, cramming things, pulling late nights, getting that, not necessarily at least, uh, but you can, you can really hold off until things are the way that you really expect them to be. And that leads to, uh, I would assume less, not necessarily less error prone code, but more deliberate code. Yeah. I mean, I have broken stuff and I have stayed up late to fix it because 
I know that that's going to ruin somebody's day, and there's probably a lot of people whose day would get ruined, right? So if there's a huge mistake, it still needs to be addressed in a timely manner. But yeah, it, when it's ready is is kind of the idea. But thinking about when it's ready, you know, projects like Node have a release cycle that's on a schedule. Uh, we're considering moving to something like that to kind of support maybe offer support for older versions of Mocha. And that's that's something I haven't fully explored, but it would mean that the next release isn't just when it's ready. It's just we cut it when it's time to cut it. That is interesting, looking at things where there's a defined release cycle. I would imagine yeah. that forces you to to approach it pretty differently. Yeah, I think a release cycle, maybe that's, I think release cadence is the word I want to use, but... Yeah, I, I don't really know what we're getting into there. I've only seen what how it works for Node, and um, it seems to work pretty well for them. I think it may even move maybe too quickly for some enterprises, but you know, certainly too quickly for AWS Lambda. Nick, you work more in kind of an agency situation, right? So where what are some of the dimensions you have seen projects vary along? Uh, so yeah, I do. I do consulting, and so I'll, I'll often join a new team and kind of integrate in with them or just get thrown features and be asked to to complete them or I'll be thrown a complete project and do it from start to finish. So it, it all kind of varies. And that's that's kind of the fun of what I do is I get to jump around in between all of that and I get to see a lot of varying teams and kind of not bring a whole lot of opinion uh, a lot of times to to the teams that I'm joining because I usually just try and be a part of the team and a part of their processes that they already have in place rather than define my own, unless, you know, they don't have any, then that's always a good time to, to do that. Uh, but with that, some of the things that I see are, are things like them not having processes set up or not having, uh, you know, strict coding code set standards set up things that I'm used to. in, in a lot of the code that I work on, uh, I might go in and think, you know, what year is this when I see code that has tabs and spaces in the same file or, or you know, crazy little things like that or no CI setup or uh, tests that nobody touches because they're broken and nobody knows how to fix them. So nobody writes new tests. Uh, and then also dealing with, you know, I'm part of a team that comes in and helps. So I'm like a contractor, but there might also be other contractors. And so you have varying levels of standards within that. So there, there's a lot of variance that that goes into the work that I tend to do. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I haven't worked for an agency and I always thought it was, oh, somebody comes to you, hey, we want this app built, you build it and give it to us. But what you mainly do is you actually integrate with existing dev teams to help them build their product. Is that mainly what you're doing? Sometimes, kind of do both. So mm -hmm. it kind of depends on the contracts and what, what the team uh, or the company that we're, we're going to work with actually wants. But yeah, so it kind of varies between between both of those. One dimension that we haven't talked about as much here, but I think is, is kind of interesting. It's, and it's not something that I've worked in very much, but you know, there is code, like the, the way that you want to approach code that's going to run inside of something like a pacemaker or a car or something else where you know, failure modes have dramatically larger or more impactful effects than your average web app. Like that completely changes the way you're going to choose to approach that code. Yeah, it is. That's terrifying. <laughs> Working on something so mission critical like that where lives are at stake. Uh, I can't think I've ever, of a time that I've ever done anything like that. And it kind of terrifies me, if I'm being honest. <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting to think about because 
I feel like the web is so dominant in terms of mindshare and volume. You know, there are so many people working on web-related projects. Uh, most of a very large amount of the code tutorials, etc., that at least I see that are written are kind of tied into the web in one form or another. That there's a set of sort of assumptions and practices related to those assumptions that kind of rolls along with that, right? Like if we make assumptions about the cost of an error and how fast it is to iterate things, like that's going to drive us in a very different direction. You know, if you're thinking about the web where, okay, an error might lose us a little money um, and give a user a bad experience, but we can roll out a deploy for that quickly and we'll see it instantly as compared to like, I'm writing software for a pacemaker uh, I will never see the results of this software, but if it fails, somebody might die. <laughs> Another interesting dimension that we don't talk about that much is actually like the organization a project is embedded in and its performance. This is something, you know, I've done a lot of startup work and something I see there, and there's often challengers for developers coming into a startup for the first time, especially if they've worked at a larger company or something like that, is if the life time of a feature or even a product, if the expected lifetime is small, the amount of code quality and investment and tests and things like that that actually make sense are very different, right? So like in an early stage startup, many times you're writing features or products that are literally tests. They're there to see, is there any interest in this direction? And if you spend three hours whipping up a prototype version that mostly works, or you can spend a week creating a great one with lots of unit tests, like if you're going to throw it away in two weeks after you have the information you need, like that first choice makes a lot more sense. But that's really painful for most developers. And they don't end up throwing it away. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes. I mean, most of the startups that I have worked at, most of the code ends up getting thrown away. The problem is the one that hits, the one that takes, doesn't get thrown away. And that's the survivor bias. And you say, okay, I should have spent more time writing that because now we're running with it in production and it's been two years. And we forget about the dozen tests we ran that we did throw away. Like we need to, and this is a maybe detour a little bit, but I think you know, thinking about how we approach stuff that is tests and then leaving time to rewrite the ones that succeed is kind of an interesting area to look at this, right? Like I find that in my experience, most developers overassume the required quality for stuff that happens in an early startup because they we, we come in with this assumption like we're never going to be able to rewrite this we write try to write all of them as if they're never going to be rewritable and it ends up costing us way more time than if we did 12 with 11 of them thrown away and then we actually spent the time to rewrite the 12th one properly well even i mean it doesn't even need to be a rewrite but i mean once you figure out something works okay ship it but it's it's really hard to sell that, hey, hold up, we need to fix some of the tech debt that's already here instead of pushing forward in this direction. Uh, and that's, that's always a tough sell. Yeah, yeah, because you, you have to get something like a, an MVP out to be able to sell that. And then if you do end up selling it, there's inevitably features that need to be added on. So finding the time to do that and justifying the time to the potential buyers that are waiting for it or, or whatever, depending on on what the product is, that, that's where, where things get difficult. It absolutely is. Here's the thing, is we all imagine these cases, and we, we think about them because we know them, but that is also survivorship bias, right? That's the feature that worked. By far the most common case as a startup is you launch it and nobody touches it. 
it's 100% ignored. Can you explain survivorship bias? Yeah. So survivorship bias is the concept that the thing that sticks in our head and the thing that we take as the example is the example that survives uh, or that, that did best. Um, so a common way this is used is actually uh, talking about the value of being a startup founder. I'm in that world, so I'm going to stay in the startup world a little bit. Um, so you know, we romanticize startup founders. We say, oh, you're going to get rich. as a startup founder. Like, that's how you're going to get rich. And we have these very high profile you know, folks. Um, you look at an Elon Musk, you look at Mark Zuckerberg or Jack from Twitter or whatever, and they talk about all the things that they did. And we look at those things and we say, oh, you've got to go to Harvard and then drop out. Or you've got to do whatever and drop out. Or you've got to, you know, what's Jack's new thing? Like, you've got to go and meditate someplace and look at all these things. And we take them as examples of, oh, this is what this successful person did. And if you step back and you say, okay, assume a random chance of surviving and doing well. If we only look at those examples, like we're not looking at the failures, right? There may be, for every Mark Zuckerberg, hundreds of dropouts from Harvard who tried and failed. There may be, you know, for every Jack, um, there may be hundreds of failed startup founders who tried those things. Like the things that we look at and say, that's how you do it, or that's the problem with that scenario. If we only look at the success cases, we completely bias our results. So bringing these back to code, you know, if we build 12 features and one of them takes off and the code is underdeveloped, you know, say we, we build 12 features for all of them, we underdevelop the code, which is what lets us ship 12 features. The 12th one is really successful. And we say, gosh, we never have time to rewrite it. We should have built it better from up front. And we don't look at the case of someone who spent the time to write things well, only shipped three features and none of them took off. Does that make sense? Sort of, but what is the result? The result is that we draw, if we, if we do that, and we have, as people, we have a tendency to do this, we draw conclusions based on the chance one that succeeded uh, without taking into account the fact that it may have been chance or that the fact that you know, the factors that we're criticizing here may actually have been part of the reason that we even had the chance to see it. Interesting. Anyway, I think we've pretty much covered a lot of the dimensions on which projects vary. We'll take a quick break and come back and talk about what are the implications of that? What are the different types of practices that you might do differently based on those project size and age? Um, how do those vary? What are the implications for us as developers? And what lessons can we take from that? But for now, let's take a quick bio break. This episode is brought to you by Algolia, search technology to power your business, trusted by Twitch, Stripe, Adobe, and many more, even us. Yes, we use them to power our search, and we love the way they obsess over that developer experience. They let us fine-tune the index for the best results and report back what people are searching for, even servicing search terms that get zero results, which we love. Check the show notes for a link to get started for free, or head to algolia.com to learn more. Okay, welcome back to JS Party. We spent the first segment of this episode talking about some of the dimensions along which our software projects vary. Uh, let's now dive into some of the practices that will also vary along project size and age. So Nick, you kind of hinted to this a little bit in your talk about 
you know, going into organizations and finding the practices or processes are not set up or various other things. Um, do you want to expand on that a little bit more? Like what are the different dimensions that you've seen varying based on client? Sure. So depending on the type of project uh, that I might go into, they might, there's different metrics that they might prioritize above others. And that's things like code coverage or documentation or like what specific things get focused on in terms of like features being built and the teams building that or like going through QA processes and things like that. That might be certain parts, just depending on, on the type of project that we're working on. Can you give some examples of different QA processes or things like that? It, it seems like a lot of a lot of the teams that, that I end up working with have kind of adopted this concept of inner source, which is kind of taking open source practices and using that internally within a company. So you're not necessarily working on open source stuff, but you might be adopting open source practices. And I think that GitHub has really helped push that a long way. It makes it easy for teams to implement code reviews through like pull requests and things like that. And so that's something that's almost always ubiquitously there, pull requests and code reviews based on that. So getting at least one person, one other developer to approve your PR before you merge it in. And then really working from there, they might have a dev branch, like kind of following the more of the Git flow pattern or just might push straight to master. Uh, but almost always the master branch is thought to be never broken or you try to, to never have it be broken. So everything that is pushed there has been tested and reviewed and works. What kind of tests do you see if there are tests? Uh, usually there'll be unit tests, um, and some end to end tests. And one thing that we try and really push is, uh, I know it's not always a great metric, but we try and push code coverage numbers in what we will deliver. So we'll say like, oh, all of our code will have at least 90% code coverage so that it's just a metric that we can push and, and say, you know, this is something that we've hit. We've tried to test all of these factors. And that usually leads to, you know, writing those tests and getting those up. It usually leads to trying to stomp out a lot of bugs that might creep in, not all of them, of course, and, it, and it's not perfect, but it is a, a decent uh, metric to be able to push towards that. Uh, but then also things like end-to-end -end tests uh, or functional tests where we're you know, using a web driver API and running the browser as, as if we were a user and doing that in an automated way. Do you see like separate teams for writing end-to-end -end tests or anything like that? I have, and that has been interesting. <laughs> uh, in that those tests often are very brittle if it's not the developers thinking about it, I think. Uh, or or the, at least the developers who are working on those specific features uh, or that specific part of the app, if it's more of a team writing those tests. I've seen those tests be more brittle and break quite easily, which is always scary because then, like the first thing that I think of whenever an end-to-end -end test breaks is what went wrong with the test, not is the test broken? Or is the test actually showing me a, an error or is the test just broken? I guess is a better way to put it. That kind of raises an interesting question and something that I have occasionally a heretical view on, but I'm going to get y'all's perspective first. Are there cases or projects or situations where more testing is actually a negative? Yes. I feel like this is a leading question, but yes. <laughs> if your tests are very tightly coupled to your code base, it makes refactoring painful. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And mostly this is seen in unit tests. If you're mocking stuff 
that you don't have control over in making these very kind of subtle mistakes. Like you can end up in trouble. And yeah, I mean, I could go off on my whole like philosophy about it, but I'm curious what uh, Nick you think. Uh, yeah, I think that it's too many tests uh, are especially bad if there's a lot of flux going on in the code. Uh, because then things just do break all the time, and especially things like unit tests or, you know, a lot of the tests that we we end up writing right now with like, are, are testing the output of like the virtual DOM, uh, and comparing that, and and then you know making changes to the state somewhere, and then diffing that with what we expect the the virtual DOM to look like, things like that. And if there's a lot of flux going on in the way that that might look, then there's a lot of rewriting those tests that that tends to happen. Uh, so I like pushing those. I, I don't really follow TDD straight. I, I like to get things working and get things pretty much flushed out and then go and add tests later um, just because it tends to avoid a lot of rework. Yeah, I think that dimension of you know how much flux is there, what's the rate of change, how settled is this code is actually a really interesting one when it comes into practices and how we want to do it. It ties into tests a lot in this. I think it also does, ties into like how much do you want to worry about making your code dry? We had an episode, oh gosh, four or five months ago, where I had a conversation with um, Michael Chan, Chantastic from the React podcast. And he had this whole talk about dry code is brittle code. You know, if you're changing your code a lot, the more you dry it out, the more you add lots of tests, the harder it is to change. This kind of ties into, uh, I think, Chris's point about you know, Mocha being now a more mature project, right? It's, it's more mature. It's changing at least on a feature level more slowly. That would imply that you know some of these more traditional code quality metrics like test coverage and you know how dry it is and things like that may actually be much more valuable and applicable than you know an early stage project where everything's in flux. Yeah, I mean, if, if your code base is churning, um, you're gonna you're gonna have problems with your your tests, like. Functional tests or end-to-end -end tests in particular, I've had the experience that A, it's hard to write good ones. B, um, if you try to hire somebody to do that, you know, they may, and, and usually the people that, we, that are hired to do it seem to be often very junior developer types that want to become developer someday. And so they're getting their foot in the door as a QA engineer writing tests like this. And the more that the code changes and the more features are added and the more tweaks that happen. And so if you have this other person who's supposed to automate these things, it goes into this like pipeline and <laughs> there's just like this pile of tests that are perpetually broken and there's like a backlog of things that they need to fix or write new tests for. And it's just, it's a huge issue. I've seen certain companies out there try to solve this with kind of crowdsourcing. And uh, I don't know, I imagine they do some sort of macro recording or something to kind of flesh out these functional tests. But it's always in the companies that I've worked for uh, previously, it was always a really big source of conflict and, and uh, headaches just because keeping those functional tests up to date with continually changing features and new code and stuff was just not scaling very well. So what's the happy median then? I don't know what the solution is for a, a product team like I used to be on. I do know that 
I had this kind of, it was kind of indoctrinated that, hey, you got to do TDD and you got to write all these unit tests. And I thought, okay, great. I'll do that. And then we see that those unit tests don't necessarily mean too much if the whole end-to-end process is, is not coming together. You know, you could have 100% code coverage and your app could be 100% broken. But in Mocha, for instance, I've come to see that we don't have 100% unit test coverage. And that's fine because we have so many integration or, or fu- you know, functional tests where we invoke Mocha from itself and test the output of Mocha. And those are incredibly valuable. It makes me think, well, you know, I, I could see unit tests from looking at TDD and then there's people who love it, people who hate it, people who fall somewhere in between. I I wouldn't see the value in going back and adding a ton of cover unit test coverage to a bunch of stuff in Mocha when it's already um, very well covered by the integration testing. And so my thought has, has shifted from, Oh, functional tests are bad because it's impossible to keep them up to date and it's really expensive and unit tests are good, that's what we're supposed to do, to kind of flipping over where it's like, oh, well, if you can write these integration tests and keep them maintained, and there's not a whole lot of flux in your project, then, well, they're awesome. They do a great job, and unit tests are nice to have, but we don't need to go out of our way to add those corners of the code where where lines are not covered. I want to throw out one more uh, possible variation of practice and and ask if it's uh something that project type may influence and this is a little bit of a troll for nick but what about typing are there projects i know you're a big typescript advocate are there projects for which typing is not a good choice are there projects for which typing is particularly useful as compared to others if you have one other person looking at the code typing is amazing (laughs) uh no that's kind of my troll answer i guess i i'm obviously a big fan of typescript and adding types, because I think that it makes working with the code easier. It helps me understand what I'm even trying to do. But it can be very limiting, uh, especially at the beginning. If you're going into a project that maybe has a lot of flux in it, the types might make you feel like you're being constrained because, you know, you, you did something and now you want to go change it. And now, you know, maybe this interface changes or several of these interfaces change and you have to go update all of that. And it's just a lot of code that never actually makes it to runtime that you you end up uh, dwelling on for a while. But I think that there's a lot of benefit to that, especially if you have uh, a team of any size. I feel like, and this is, I don't have any data, but I feel like there's a, a, like an inflection point where developer productivity is going to be greater not using something like TypeScript. And as the, the size and complexity of the project grows, there's some point where, shoot, it would really be nice if we had types. And it's like, it's too late. Yeah. (laughs) See, I I guess now I feel like writing any code without types, it just feels awkward to me because now I've, for the longest time, I was just kind of this vanilla Vim user who didn't expect anything from the editor. I just had to type everything in because that's what you get in JavaScript. But now I just find it really nice, you know, getting little uh, warnings and pop-ups from the LSP telling me, that things are wrong or things aren't as I expect and just helping guide me a little bit more. I've just become so accustomed to that, that I, I don't like using 
I don't like not having it anymore. You know what I love? I love that other projects are written in TypeScript and not mine because I get all those types in my editor and I don't <laughs> have to write my own. There you go. The happy medium right there. For me, not for thee. Or no, for thee, not for me. Whatever it is. <laughs> okay for others, not for me. But yeah. No, I, I think that's awesome. It's like you get a lot of the benefits without having to think about it. And I think I may have said before, even on the show, like type, TypeScript is really difficult for me because I have a lot of perfectionist type tendencies. And so I'll just, if, if I started with a project with TypeScript, I would spend all my time fussing with the types and not get anything done. And that's just, that's just been my experience with, but um, I love like, going and sending a pull request to a TypeScript project or something like that. That's great. But um, I can't be expected <laughs> to think about it myself. <laughs> That's funny. That is one of the, the big things with TypeScript. You can go down that rabbit hole of wanting everything to be perfect. And if it's something that's pretty well out of your control, then you end up doing a lot of, of writing this code that never makes it to runtime, like I said. And that can be really demotivating if you're trying to do something. I was trying to use it on a project that was a, a Chrome extension. This was way back. I don't know. Things have probably gotten much better, but I couldn't find like any types for the APIs that Chrome would give you. And so I started just writing my own and the ones that I found were broken or, you know, the APIs had changed. So I spent so much time just fixing that. And before I knew it, four hours had passed and I had no code with these types that I weren't even really using right, right at that second. So it just kind of, I lost momentum on that side project. I feel like dev teams, if they're going to use it, should designate a developer as the, the type master and the type master is in charge of the types <laughs> and, and everybody else uses the any type until the type master comes and fixes it. <laughs> How much of that is so you don't have to worry about the types? That's so everybody else doesn't have to worry about the types except the type master. <laughs> type master. Yeah, I feel like, you know, I, I do work right now both. I, I'm not using TypeScript, but I, have, I do use other typed languages occasionally. And then I'm using JavaScript. Um, and I feel like the value of typing as Nick alluded to, it goes up the more people are working with the code base and the more your complex your code is and the more different pieces because then those hints and enforcements become extremely valuable. It does kind of slow you down when you're just trying to hack something together. And so, you know, looking back to this question about dimensions on which projects vary, like if I'm doing a quick and dirty script to try something out, I'm not going to use something typed. If I'm building a project I expect a lot of folks to interact with, types start to make a lot more sense. All right. I think that's good for this segment. Um, let's take another quick break. And when we come back, we will be talking about some of the lessons that we have learned or that we have seen other people talk about from big projects. Uh, because I think one of the big gaps in a lot of coding education is that teaching in courses and you know, if you're in a boot camp or you're in a you know, CS course or whatever it is, all your projects are pretty short-lived, and so there's potentially some stuff that's getting missed. So we will talk about that after the break. This episode is brought to you by Gage. Gage is a free and open source test automation tool by ThoughtWorks. The goal of the tool is to take the pain out of test automation and to help with this Gage supports specifications of Markdown, which are easy to read and easy to write, reusable specifications to simplify your code, which makes refactoring easier, and less code means less time maintaining code. 
and finally integrations. Use Gauge with your favorite tools and your IDEs and the ecosystem of your choice. Selenium, Saihi Pro, CIC and CD tools like GoCD, Jenkins, Travis, and IDE support for Visual Studio, VS Code, IntelliJ, and more. Head to gauge.org slash jsparty to learn more and give it a try. Again, gauge.org slash jsparty. Welcome back to the final segment of this week's JS Party, and we are going to be talking about some lessons that we have drawn or that we've seen other people draw from working on big and long-lived projects, so that folks who are still out there learning are working mostly on shorter-scale projects. Maybe you're you know, at a startup or you're at an agency and, and your stuff doesn't last that long. Um, what are some of the lessons that, that you may need to learn to help scale for larger and longer term projects. Um, anybody excited to jump on a lesson they've learned? Larger projects and long-lived projects are very boring compared to very short-lived projects. And several big ones uh, don't, have, don't tend to use the latest and greatest of whatever is in the JavaScript or, or whatever ecosystem. Uh, so there's a lot of older legacy code that if you just go by like Hacker News or Reddit, is totally dead and nobody's using, but it's actually very much in use. Grunt. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking of. Wait, isn't Grunt dead? I heard Gulp was dead. Essentially. Is Gulp dead? Uh, I saw some posts that he made that he was like, oh, I have all these great ideas for uh, the next version of Gulp. And I think he said something about he was thinking about crowdsourcing funding to work on them. I don't have the experience of working on, like, I, I, I didn't go to code school. I'm not sure what those projects look like. I haven't done a whole lot of short-lived projects. So, yeah, I'm more curious to see what people who've, you know, like Nick, who have worked on both those types have uh, their experiences. I do think one of the interesting things that I've seen you know, going in sometimes to, you know, help folks with very old long-lived projects, um, and this ties a little bit into what Nick is talking about, is there is often a lot of really old stuff, um, and an extremely valuable skill is learning how to, essentially how to refactor code gradually, right? How do you put scaffolds in place so that you can safely update old code? You know, and a lot of that is concepts like, okay, before you even do any update, bring anything in, can you make clean the interface boundaries between different parts of the code so that you can update and change you know, this part without having to mess with everything all at once? Because long-lived project is usually you know, very complex. There's more things that you can hold in your head at once. And if you can move things to be more isolated and have cleaner interfaces, that enables you to then upgrade things piece at a time. What sort of upgrades are you talking about? Can you give an example? Um, sure. So I, I helped out with a project. I went in and did sort of a training um, on a team that had a project that was written in Cold Fusion. And it's this old application. Cold Fusion had all of their SQL tied up with their templates, had these old CSS files, weren't even using SAS, lots of different JavaScript libraries getting pulled in willy-nilly. And they wanted to move to a more modern front-end practices, understandably. 
and sort of kind of working with them to think about how do we take, for example, these pages where our concepts of how we're manipulating data and how we're displaying data are all kind of entangled together and even give ourselves the opportunity to upgrade pieces of it by disentangling those parts, you know, and kind of creating separated data and presentation. You know, that's, that's a very legacy seeming example, right? You wouldn't expect a modern company to be doing all of those things. And yet they were, uh, because this app had been around for 10 years and they'd never had the bandwidth or time to refactor it. You can look at similar things, like if you're thinking about a modern front end trying to adopt React or Vue or Angular or something like that, like, can you find ways to segment out pieces of your project and start upgrading them bit by bit? You know, is that by making them more components? Is that by having an app that is like moving over page by page? There are different ways you can approach it, but the sort of skill that you have to sort of adopt or learn for these bigger and older projects is like, how do we create modularity where it may not exist? Right, because in a small project, you can usually hold the whole thing in your head, and you can, you know, I want to update my uh, React application. I want to change it over to Vue. Okay, I'm going to do a big bang rewrite, and since my app has you know 20 pages, it'll take me three weeks, but then I'll be done. If you have a project that's been worked on for years and years and years, like you need to be able to create modularity where it may not exist. And in JavaScript, modules didn't exist for a long time, so you might run into that still in older projects. Yeah. Yeah, have you ever updated a non-modular project to a module-based project? Mm-hmm. It was not fun. <laughs> uh, those projects like relied on, uh, well, oftentimes it would rely on things like concatenating files in the right order or having script tags just loading in the right order. And so somebody mm-hmm. had to manage that and understand that this piece comes before that. So if I need this, it has to be loaded before this and before this. And then you can run into lots of problems with that. But then the kind of community-grown modules got introduced, and that really helped a lot. So AMD and CommonJS. Uh, but then CommonJS and the browsers, they don't really get along. So uh, we kind of covered that in the last episode, talking about how NPM has kind of taken over the world, uh, and f- including the front end, but there's all of this CommonJS code that can't natively run in, in the front end at all. And so it's really nice that we have all of that now, but there's a lot of code that, is still not anywhere close to using the ESM module syntax or anything like that. And so I think that's another thing that you can do is kind of segment off the code and introduce the build step into a small portion of the code that can give you the same kind of output, but then can help you modularize your code. I've actually, I've done something like this. Um, It wasn't, you know, switching to ES6 modules, but it was an app. And essentially what it was, was maybe a PHP entry point. And in that PHP file, there was a list of script tags and those were being output to the browser. And I was able to look at all those. And this is including like third-party libraries, stuff pulled out of Bower. Um, There was stuff just kind of thrown in with using globals all over the place and, and not encapsulated or or contained in any way. And I was able to actually use Webpack to bundle the whole thing. But I know people give Webpack grief because it's so hard to configure and and this, that, and the other thing. But you know what? Like, If you're presented with a situation like that where it's just script soup, 
Webpack does give you the tools to be able to sort things out. And eventually I figured it out. It was not easy. There is a whole bunch of aliases and, and you know, uh, these like kind of hacks that needed to happen, but plugins were there to do all of it. And it was just a matter of figuring out, okay, this module does this weird thing and it's needed by module X. Um, I was able to do it because Webpack is you know, very powerful and customizable. So, you know, I guess, I guess you could call that a success story. <laughs> well, I think it highlights a really interesting practice that may not be obvious if you've once again kind of worked only in smaller or newer code bases, which is the first thing you want to do when you're tackling something like that is like, set up like reproduce your existing system with the new system right so don't try to modularize your code and introduce webpack and all of that all in one go right put webpack in and just like figure out how do i use aliases to reproduce the existing build with webpack okay once i've got that working and i know that it's there then i can tease out bit by bit like okay this could become a module that's imported actual in a real way or or you know pull things apart. But if you try to do it all at once, you'll get lost in the complexity. Yeah, absolutely. Just like one thing at a time. And you, even that is just big enough. It's like, yeah, wow. I mean, you got third party like vendor scripts that are pulled down and saved and they're four versions old. And then you need to try to like get everything to pull from NPM. And uh, those versions are different and the files you get are different. Oh my God. But yeah, don't bite off more than you can chew. I mean, I, I figured I could do it, and that's why I, I did it. But um, I knew it was possible. If I would have tried to take those crazy scripts that just throw everything in the global namespace and try to make ES modules out of them, that, that would have seriously put the brakes on things. So. Yeah, and front-end development is really, uh, that's one of the benefits of it, is that it's really set up for being able to incrementally add and, and change things, or at least it, it seems to have evolved that way with things like Webpack and being able to take any kind of file and make them all work together. You can build a, a build process out of that that will get your code uh, into production with any format and mixing and matching everything so that you can slowly migrate over towards one format and, and refactor your code like that. And then the same thing goes with introducing types if you were going to do that with typescript you can incrementally you know start with one file and type that and then make sure that it works and then slowly add more uh, types to more files as you go uh, but it's all about getting the infrastructure in there to allow you to make those incremental changes and then rigorously test along the way that's not something that you have to think about much with newer projects uh, i think well that raises an example of a place where tests can be super useful and a lot of times if you have a if you're coming into a legacy project there may not be full test coverage but if you can set up tests whether they're automated ideally or even just manual but well documented of what the expected outcome is around the area of code that you're going to be modernizing or addressing then you can as you go along be sure that you're not effing things up mm -hmm. yeah i mean so if your legacy app doesn't have those functional tests yeah, it may be really difficult to do that up front, right? Uh, especially if your code is spaghetti or um, not written in a very testable way. Um, and then maybe you want to, oh boy, yeah. So you're afraid to move forward with the, the modernization unless you 
get these tests in place. And it's painful to put the tests in place because the code is bad. <laughs> That's one of the reasons I sort of highlighted that you, you can even do manual tests, right? Like, what is the functionality that this is even trying to support? If I test through it right now, physically, what does it do? Okay, I wrote all that down. I wrote how I tested it. Now I changed something. Does it still freaking work? Because, I mean, ideally it's all automated, but there's some code that writing an, a test for is just like you're going to spend days on that. Yeah. Yep. And it's totally achievable because, you know, that's why all of our banks are running on the latest version of Node, right? One thing I do want to highlight here too is like we're using the word legacy a lot. Honestly, like the, the speed that web technology moves, legacy code might be code from six months or a year ago. It doesn't have to be that far out of date before it's something that perhaps needs to be modernized or there's better practice. I mean, legacy code might just mean we wrote this in a hurry because we were under a time crunch and now we have time to look back at it even though it's only three months later and we say, ooh, we should have done that differently. That feels like legacy code. Yeah, and code that maybe wasn't written with maybe performance in mind. So quickly getting something started and proving out that it's possible, uh, maybe it's not done in the most efficient way and there's ways to refactor that. And that could be code that's not, you know, years and years old, just months old maybe that you want to go back and revisit. All right, any other lessons that y'all want to highlight or shall we get to the quick uh, special contest announcement? Contest it up. All right, so this contest is pretty exciting uh, and it's going to be an experiment. So the high level is coming up this summer, June 21st and 22nd, there's going to be NodeConf Colombia taking place in Medellin, Colombia. And we will be there doing a live episode. We would love to see you there. And we have a free ticket to give away to one of our listeners. Now, caveat, the ticket only covers conference entrance. Um, so you still have to deal with flights and hotel. But free ticket. And especially if you're already down in Latin America, it may be quick and easy to get there. Or if you're coming from the States, you know there are plenty of ways to get in. Um, I just looked at those flights. I was doing them. So anyway, we have a ticket to give away. And we're going to give it away in a raffle. So there are two ways that you can get raffle entries to get this. Way number one, rate or review JS Party in your podcast app. That will get you 10 entries to the raffle. Alternative for those who either don't want to do that or want to do that, but also want more entries because they're really excited about this ticket, share your favorite episodes from JS Party on social media. That will get you one entry into the raffle per episode shared. And whichever of these you do, take a screenshot of it and send it to jsparty at changelog.com. Email it to us and we will collect entries up through the end of April. So you have all month of April to do this. And then we will be putting all the entries into a raffle software. We're still figuring out, I think we're going to use an open source raffle software. So it'll all be open. You know, it is a changelog. So we want to use open source and highlight that. Um, and we'll pick out a winner who will get the free ticket to NodeConf Columbia. With that, I think we're ready to wrap up this week's JS party. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to see you next week when we have our next party about JavaScript and the web. Take care, y'all. Thank you for tuning in to JS Party this week. Tune in live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern at changelaw.com slash live. Join the community and Slack with us in real time during the shows. Head to changelaw.com slash community. And do us a favor. Share this show with a friend. We're just an Apple podcast. Go into Overcast and favorite it. And thank you to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. 
And we move fast to fix things right here at ChangeLog because of Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com. We're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers at leno.com slash changelog. Check them out and support this show. Our music is produced by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at changelog.com. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. All right, because you've stuck in here to the end of the show, got a surprise for you. Here's another preview of our upcoming show called Brain Science. This podcast is for the curious. We explore the inner workings of the human brain to understand behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and the complexities of the human condition. It's hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and my good friend, Muriel Reese, a doctor in clinical psychology. It's about brain science applied, not just how the brain works, but how we apply what we know about the brain to better our lives. Here we go. That applied brain science really stood out to me because I want, I don't want it to just be data. I want you to go, how can this fit? What can I take away? Now, how am I going to change? And that that sort of is where you come in more and even some of the questions like, so like, I want to ask you, what are some of the most challenging things working in the tech world when it comes to relationships? Probably the most important one is isolation. More and more the world and companies are being, for good reasons, they're being okay with what they call distributed teams. Yeah. And that means that you and I, we work for the same company, but you work from your home office. I work from my home office. I might go into the office a couple of times a week if I live local, but even if right. I live in San Francisco, I'm still probably a remote worker, even though I can hop in an Uber or hop on, you know, the train or whatever and go into the office and be there in a half hour. But why waste the time? You know, and this is where I would revisit what I, what I want to talk about with resonance. And that whenever we're we're learning, no matter what thing, it's really helpful when we get feedback that's both immediate and specific. And so when you're by yourself and you don't have any in interaction with other people, how can you get any feedback? I mean, you're losing most of the nonverbal communication and you also don't have um, all of the voice inflections or facial expression. Have you ever tried to, you know, be sad, feel sad, and smile at the same time. Try it. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's pretty hard. Right, because facial expression is exactly what's involved when it comes to empathy, which is relationships. Uh, I was reading a research article recently, and it talked about, you know, how um, couples who are together a really long time end up sort of looking like each other. Uh -uh. Never heard that's <laughs> yeah. And so um, what they've looked at is when we actually empathize with other people, facial expression is really key within that. And so when you empathize with the partner you're with over and over and over again, your face begins to make the same creases and facial expression as it relates to where somebody else is emotionally. Wow. Right? Say it so, is. so that's that's creepy. <laughs> Well, they've, again, this is sort of the hotbed when it comes to um, neuroscience these days is mirror neurons. And these mirror neurons are what are involved with empathy. And so mirroring, meaning I, I get another person's emotional world. And so one of the research um, studies looked at Botox. And what they found is that Botox, because it, it actually... Um, assists in paralyzing facial muscles. Right. But then, then you can't contort your face, so you don't get wrinkles. But actually, levels of empathy go down. Uh-uh. <laughs> right. Because your physical appearance can't reflect your inner appearance. You're, yeah, you got it. 
And so when you're working in these remote locations, it, it might facilitate better work or more focus, and it allows people to be distributed and to capitalize on the talents across the country, right? Yeah. Wow. So that, see, that's like a treasure trove, in my opinion. <laughs> Talking about in a scientific way, you know, not just like, hey, this is my opinion yep. uh, about all the cons of that, because I think what we can do is still have remote work, but do it in more healthy ways. Because I'm, I'm fully, I mean, I've been self-employed remote worker since 2006. Now I'm a unique animal. I know, I know, I know that. My wife knows that. Right. And I'm fine with it. I'm a good human being, but I've got some flaws and I'm willing to accept and share those to some degree. And I think the problem is, is we just, we just lack more, maybe a more purposeful or intentional feedback loop. Yeah. Which I think is, is super important to being able to operate in this world in just good ways. I don't know, healthy ways is probably the, the best way to use in this show context is healthy ways. That's a preview of Brain Science. If you love where we're going with this, send us an email to get on the list to be notified the very moment this show gets released. Email us at editors at changelaw.com. In the subject line, put in all caps, Brain Science, with a couple bangs if you're really excited. You can also subscribe to our master feed to get all of our shows in one single feed. Head to changelaw.com slash master or search in your podcast app for Change All Master. You'll find it. Subscribe, get all of our shows, and even those that only hit the master feed. Again, changelaw.com slash master. Music.